We continue, dear brethren, in our exposition of the wilderness wanderings as they are recorded for us in the book of Numbers. We turn now to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 to 13. Miriam has just been laid to rest, having served her generation. Oh, that, that you, dear daughters of Sarah, women of God, may follow the best of what Miriam exemplified, and not her worst. Well, now... We proceed in this chapter where we have not only the death of Miriam, but the death of Moses, the man of God, and of Aaron. And so we consider, with God's help, the account of the waters of Meribah. And as you have your Bibles, please follow along with me. And there was no water for the congregation... And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and said, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? Wherefore have he made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines, or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother. And speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their beasts also. <clears throat> and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. So you'll recall that the people of God, having been brought all the way unto Kadesh, they could throw a stone into the land of promise that God swore to the fathers. God has them, before they enter in, engage in some reconnaissance. Twelve spies, you know, boys and girls were sent in, and they went up and down and surveyed the land, and they came back after 40 days with a report. This was a good land. 
Indeed, a land that flowed with milk and honey. And look, here, here are these, these massive clusters of grapes. And yet ten of them, ten of them thought we cannot take it because look at these giants. We feel like grasshoppers before them and, and their cities, their walled cities all the way up unto heaven. We can't do this. And only two, Caleb and Joshua, protest. We can do this through the Lord. Dear friends, we read in Hebrews that the gospel was preached before unto that generation. But many of them, with many of them, God was not pleased because they did not mix the word with faith. Caleb and Joshua would go into that land, but not before a 40-year detour, that the entirety of that generation who did not believe should drop dead in the desert, and then the second generation would go in, that God, that God may fulfill his promise and yet visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. He is a righteous God. We cannot play with God. He is infinitely gracious, abundantly gracious. But he is not God to be trifled with. And he gives a time and an opportunity to believe but even under the gospel, if we abuse that opportunity, if we do not heed the, the, the warm welcomes and appeals from the servants of God to flee the wrath to come and come into the shelter of Jesus Christ, that day will come to an end as it was in the days of Noah. Well, so we've followed them through these 40 years. And now, at this particular point, by and large, that first generation has died. They are just about to go into the plains of Moab. And under Joshua, they will go in. Which is perhaps why it was so distressing that Moses should witness, once again, the very same kind of sin as the fathers. It is noteworthy uh, that this account is very similar to that which we have recorded in Exodus 17. Now they are different and we'll consider some of the differences where the Lord provides water out of the rock. But what a distressing thing that when one would expect better things of this new generation that they fall to the old patterns of complaining and murmuring and rebelling against God. And yet, with all these tragic lessons, dear friends, the gospel shines through again and again. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who had not yet been manifest, but was coming, coming to save Israel from her sins. We do indeed have prophecies and types and shadows. Well, consider with me, dearly beloved, these waters of Meribah, the Hebrew word for 
strife, contention, feuding. First, let us consider the striving of the people. Second, the failure of Moses and Aaron. And third, the grace and glory of God. There was no water. And so they gather to file into the line to make complaints. They're not so very different from you and me, are they? And before you want to be in a position of leadership, especially among the people of God, just take a moment and assess and weigh all the hassles and the problems and the difficulties. Let's not forget Moses, the meekest man upon the earth. At one point, he wants to die. He's so, he's so weary with these people. Have I conceived them in my womb that I have to carry and, and nurture them? Oh, Lord, why don't you just take my life now? That's how bad they were. There's no water, and so they go and complain to Moses. Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? What kind of talk is that? It would be better for us to have died than to come to this place. They're just about to enter the Holy Land. And somehow they think that this temporary turning off of the faucet means that they're all going to die while they're looking on the real estate. God doesn't do that. Now he tempts. That is to say, he tests. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, James says. But he does test his people. There's a stress test, isn't there, that is placed upon the children of God. And so maybe they can see that real estate, but there's no water. Is God tormenting them? Of course not. Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Notice that they, that they, they even want to associate themselves with those who had rebelled against God before and were punished. Isn't that exactly what those who survived the rebellion of Korah did. You killed the men, the men of God. You mean those six feet under in the belly of the earth? Interesting how very, how very easily our perspective is confused. Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? Again, we're, we're hearing just a replay again and again. It's, it's a broken record. The same kind of thin, threadbare reasons, which are no reasons at all. Why? Why do you regurgitate the same kind of foolish talk? Do not, unless you are a dog, return to your vomit, unless you are a pig, to your wallowing in the mire. If you're a new creature in Christ, old things 
are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And especially don't be saying things that are going to spread the disease of unbelief and complaining and rebellion against God. Why have you made us to come out of Egypt to bring us unto this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And so, in a sense, Moses blows his stack. It's not the first time. Here now, you rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And instead of speaking to the rock, as Jehovah had told him, he takes that rod and he strikes it not once, as he had been commanded in Exodus 17, but twice against the clear and specific direction of the Lord God. And as we shall see, this displeased the Lord. And on account of it, he forfeited the privilege of entering into the promised land himself. Just, just try to imagine what it must have been like for Moses. You are raised up as the redeemer of God's people in an amazing providence through a basket in the river Nile and taken up into the very court of Pharaoh himself. All that God should fulfill the promise to Father Abraham that this land would be yours and your people would be as the stars of the heavens in multitude. And now you don't get to see it. Talk about disappointment. Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever had hopes? As you try to read providence in the light of scripture and always read your life in light of scripture not the other way around but it seems as though God has something good and, and maybe you've, you've set your eyes upon it and then he takes it out of your hand just remember if you're a child of God even his chastisement is a mercy to you But he did, as Psalm 106 indicates, having been provoked, they provoked his spirit so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. Beware. Beware that your sin does not infect others. Christian, let us not put a stumbling block in the way of our brothers and sisters. We're to even avoid the very appearance of sin. And let us especially not be the dead weight to bring other good men and women down. They angered him also with the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. As one who is 
the link between the sinking ship and the waters. And as he is pulled upon, they drag him under. Now was his sin, and let none of us shift the blame of our sins, but it is the case that we can provoke others, and sometimes we can not just drag ourselves down, but take others with us. Don't take others with you in your sin. Be done with your sin. But if you will cling to it, let others go. Second, the failure of Moses and Aaron. So we look at this more closely. Moses and Aaron obeyed, yet wrongly. They obeyed, yet wrongly. Verse 7, Take the rod, and gather thou assembly, the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Isn't that interesting? How scripture is very specific. Just because Moses sinned, it does not indicate that there was no virtue, no obedience. But the obedience was not as it ought to have been. Indeed, it, it was flatly against the command of God. He was to speak unto the rock. He was to honor the name of God. And the root of their disobedience, as the root of all disobedience, is unbelief. They did not believe in Jehovah. They did not set their eyes upon him. Now, Moses is in the hall of faith because he saw him who is invisible and followed. But like Peter, way down the road, he could take his eyes off the Lord. And that's a, that's a warning for us, dear brothers and sisters, not to take our eyes off the Lord, not even for a moment. Now, as this seems to be spinning out of control, this is the second generation. One might say, in the, on the balance, that this is a more hopeful opportunity. Now there's a, a new congregation, as it were, to go into the promised land. And yet, now... Everything just spins out of control and they're doing the same kinds of things that the fathers did. Psalm 78 tells us that we are to teach our children the ways of the Lord, that we are to diligently read with them the Bible and pray with them and talk about the things of God, rising up, walking by the way, reclining at night, so that they may set their hope in God and might not be like the fathers. Again, we're to honor our father and mother as long as they are honorable, but not to worship them, especially if they are not serving the Lord. But they're falling to the old ways. There not there a great power of intergenerational sin?
there is a, oftentimes a pattern. Now, the grace of God is greater than that pattern. It's not such an iron chain that the grace and the mercy of the Lord can't break it. He does it many times. And he can even break it today. If you feel chained to the sins of your father, the sins of your mother and your grandmother, the same sharp tongue, the acid tongue, the uncleanness, common sins, and yet they can be unique in degree or in power within a family. Carnal anger, have we not seen this time and time again? And how discouraging and troubling it would be to Moses and Aaron to see that old hereditary sin raising up its ugly head in the next generation. So keep this in mind. The book of Joshua informs us that this generation was about the best that there was. The generation of Joshua. Now the next generation after it, they fell. And so we enter into the book of the Judges. A dreadful time of rebellion. One would expect better. Perhaps this is what is, at least in part, behind the the troubled mind that takes Moses and Aaron and takes their eyes off of the Lord. Now, commentators debate on exactly what kind of, 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 of thoughts and motivations and reasons were in the heart of Moses and Aaron as to why they did not believe or what shape uh, that that took. What we do clearly now know is that they did not believe the Lord, verse 12, because he believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, that therefore they would not go into the promised land. Now perhaps that unbelief that took the shape of their doubt that the Lord could do this thing. Even believers, believers who have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, who have believed and have therefore spoken, who have witnessed the mighty works of God, even they can fall to unbelief and doubt. Father Abraham, as great as he was, he struggled. Sarah She laughed. It doesn't take away their justification. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's possible that there was a moment of of unbelief in, in Moses that is demonstrated in not speaking to that rock, but striking it twice. Perhaps the unbelief ran in this channel that he doubted that God should show mercy. Like Jonah, God can show mercy, but he really shouldn't. These people, they're so sinful and they're so dirty. I can't believe that God would show mercy to them. Now, of course, I believe he can show mercy to me because I'm such a great guy. 
because I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I have. It's a twisted kind of perverse unbelief. In fact, it had poisoned the minds of so many of the Jews in Jesus' day. Some people are past forgiveness. God couldn't possibly forgive the prostitutes and the tax collectors. You know, sometimes you get frustrated with people. Be honest. Sometimes you just want to wring their neck. Pastor, did you really say that? Did you really think it? Perhaps there is something, and it's clear that Moses is, is, is angry. Hear now, ye rebels. Were they rebels? Yes. But there's something about his anger that does not appear wholly righteous. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Perhaps there was something in this unbelief of anger at God for allowing this. Is that possible? It's quite possible. Job surely was not the only one to ask the question, why? Why have I brought them here, says Moses, all the way, and they're doing the same maddening things again? Is it possible, whether one or more of any of these, that Moses and Aaron had a an inflated, inflated sense of their own power and authority and honor. That perhaps in, in being jealous for the Lord, there, there was more of a sense of how it was an offense against them in particular. And maybe Moses and Aaron, as they struck that rock, had something of a superstitious, a wicked superstitious idea that somehow the Word of God is not enough. It just needs a good couple of whacks from my hand. How much of that do we see, even within the people of God? God and His Word are not adequate. Have you allowed yourself to fall into that kind of thinking, Christian? That somehow God's word needs a supplement. Somehow uh, God's uh, invisible reality, real reality, that somehow it's not enough. But whatever the particular shape of their unbelief, they dishonored Jehovah. You did not believe me to sanctify me, that is to say, hallow me. That's the first petition in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it, boys and girls? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your name be revered as holy. That's what's most important. Everything else is secondary to the glory of God. I would have mercy upon these sinners. And you seem to want to give it reluctantly, Moses. 
whatever the particular shape of their unbelief, they dishonored Jehovah. And it may not seem like a great thing to you. But small things count in God's book. It was a small piece of fruit that plunged our race into sin and misery. <coughs> and let us not be deceived by things which on the surface may not seem so bad. In fact, they may seem good. After all, they were rebels. They were challenging the Lord and his servants. But God sees not as man sees. As one has said, our works are often abounding in secret defects. Or as David says, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Keep back thy servant from secret faults. The great things and the small things. The foxes, the little foxes that spoil the grapes. Beware, beware, Christian, seasoned Christians, even. You're not yet in heaven. So tread carefully. Now you can do so, and you must do so in confidence, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. But praying along the way, lead us not into temptation. For Moses and Aaron were chastised by being withheld from the land. Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. don't think that this meant that Moses was no longer in the gracious favor of God. Not at all. But sometimes even the sins of God's people must be visited, as the Lord said of David and his sons, with the rod of men. Let him curse. Let him curse. For the Lord bade him curse. God wants me back in Jerusalem. He's going to bring me back. He had faith. He trusted. And he came through. Let us submit to the Lord's will. It's always best for us. Third and last, the grace and the glory of God. We've considered the striving of the people. They're, they're chiding with, with Moses. Second, the failure of Moses and Aaron. Third, the grace and the glory of God. Striking, isn't it, that in the most unlikely of places, we find wonderful things. It just shocks us sometimes, doesn't it? You mean to say this was here all along and I had no idea? Well, this, this rock, and we have no reason to think 
that there was an aquifer just below the surface. And it wouldn't matter anyhow if there had not been a breach to open up these waters. One would not expect this. And one would not expect, one would not expect that God should be so good and kind to people who had stubbornly and continually rebelled against him. Is there not something in Moses' frustration and anger? Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch water for you? So it seems unlikely, doesn't it? Going back again to Jonah, where do we find him in Jonah chapter 4? He's sitting under that tree. He's plopped down. Maybe he has a little bite to eat. And he's waiting for the fireworks. Well, God had already chose to hear and to hearken the earnest cries and prayers of that notorious city of Nineveh. But Jonah would have none of it. I knew this is what was going to happen, Jonah says. Because you're a merciful God. What kind of talk is this? He's the prophet of God. I almost wonder if Moses really expected any water to come out of that rock. He beat it twice. Surely there's no mercy for such sinners anymore than there's water in the wilderness. And yet, lo and behold, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. We see the grace and the glory of God. It's a, it's a striking thing. You'd think, going to the book of Numbers, which is not exactly, at least in some parts, the most easy book for us to take up and read all the way through, but we find in this unlikely place some of the most fascinating riveting accounts of God's dealings with his people. Now there's an awful lot of nasty. But amid all the nasty, there's an awful lot of grace and an awful lot of glory. And this is one of them. God shows grace and mercy to rebels through rebellion. Hang on. Listen to that again. God shows grace and mercy to rebels through rebellion. Now that doesn't excuse the sin that brought it about. But God uses the betrayal of Joseph in order to save the house of Joseph. He uses the murmuring and the complaining to bring about these waters, and as we shall see in a moment, it's not just physical water that Israel is blessed with. The Lord shows grace and mercy to Moses. Moses, whose sin was still a sin. You know, right things, wrongly done, are wrong. A little exercise in math. Five and five. 
is 10. 5 plus 0 is not 10, but at least you still have 5. 5 times 0 is 0. Now in the account of God, I want obedience. Saul, I don't want your excuses. Now for the Christian who's under the blood and is justified, the Lord is patient as a father with his children. But for those who are unconverted, they only have to do with the judge. And it's all or nothing. That's what the law says. That's the principle of Moses. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Nine out of ten may not seem bad to you. But what did Paul think? When the law revived, sin revived and he died because he knew he couldn't keep number ten. But God draws water out of a rock. This is, this is grace and this is glory. This is gracious glory. This is glorious grace. And this principle repeats itself again and again and again until finally we get to Calvary. That God uses even the wicked, twisted perversity of men to bring about his salvation and to bless his enemies. That's the gospel. God blessing his enemies by nature. And until you are saved, my friend, if you're not converted, you are God's enemy. You may be a really nice person. You may be a very dependable worker, but if you're not justified, you're an enemy of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed into the hands of sinners, and through their rebellion, the Lord brought healing. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. How was he wounded? How was he bruised? By the Roman nails. God even uses Moses' unsanctified anger. Now, did he have a legitimate cause? Yes. He was a zealot. He was, as Elijah, later on, I've been very jealous for the Lord. But it's so easy, isn't it, to conflate and to merge the cause of God and our own agenda. And I think that's what Moses was falling into in this place, where he did not believe God and he did not sanctify God in the midst of the congregation. And yet God uses that anger, smiting that rock twice, to bring out the waters. That's the gospel. And God works for his own name's sake when men fall short of the glory of God. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Moses had a pretty thankless job. 
when he had to go to Aaron after his two sons had died, Nadab and Abihu, because they burned strange incense. You might say, that just doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, it was a big deal to God. Moses has to console Aaron with these words, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people will I be glorified. God's going to get his glory. And it's most beautiful when he gets his glory by showing mercy. As we close, dearly beloved, Righteousness and life do not come by the law. The law is good. The law is holy. And the commandment holy. Indeed, Paul says the law was ordained to life. Do this, and thou shalt live. But we have not done this. And we could never do this as we ought, and therefore we may not live. And among other things, the Holy Spirit is showing not only the church in these ancient times, but believers under the New Testament through, this, through these narratives and accounts. We have much of it brought to our attention in the book of Hebrews, don't we? He's showing us that there was salvation before the coming of Christ by faith in the coming Messiah, but it was not by the law of Moses. By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And while Moses is in glory, and we'll meet him someday, he had to stay behind to be a picture to those who will seek to be right before God by their own works. You cannot. You cannot be right with God by your own works. Even if you're a Moses and not the congregation, even if you're not the rebels who are murmuring and complaining and challenging, but the man of God who in a moment of weakness does not believe God and fails to honor him before the congregation. All are disqualified, even the best, except one. Praise be to God's name. It's rather by him. But it's not by Moses. Don't try to get right with God. Don't try to escape his wrath and his judgment. This way, it's closed off. It's a bridge that is, that is destroyed. Don't keep driving down. Don't try to turn over a new leaf, to improve yourself, to take ten steps to a better you, because your better you isn't what God calls for. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want all your religious performances. I want your heart. And I don't want you to love me with a little 
or even some, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength, all thy mind. You will not go into the promised land by the law. But what we see in the water from the rock is an image of how we will enter into rest. You see, God, He is the fountain of living waters. As the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after Thee, O God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the express image of his Father's person, he is the well. He is the well of the fountain of all grace and goodness. If you knew the gift of God and who it was who saith to thee, thou shalt give me, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. Ask me. I'll give you living water. Ask me. Come to me. In the last day of the feast, he stood and cried, If any man thirst, even if you have the dirtiest, darkest conscience right now, you know what's going on behind closed doors. And God does too. But if any man anyone senses, I don't have righteousness. I don't have peace. I don't have holiness. I don't have any of these things. My heart is the rock. There's no water here. The Lord sets himself through the person of Jesus Christ. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He's so willing He's so willing. And there is infinite power. And it doesn't depend on any of his ministers, even Moses, who will sin and fail you. I'm sorry to say it. They may strike the rock. They may have an outburst of anger. But there's water. <coughs> there's water. They did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Him again. And if you've come to Him, if you've followed your forefathers and mothers, Miriam, Moses and Aaron, see through them, see past them to the one that they saw. And drink. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Please rise. Our God, we wonder at the grace and the glory of the gospel at Meribah, at this rock that brought forth her waters. Lord, we ask that 
we would be thirsty and that we would drink. And God, if there are any here who have not yet found that satisfaction, O Lord, work within them now that thirst and supply it through Jesus.